Thank you for listening to an audio resource from Stanwich Church, located in Greenwich and Stamford, Connecticut. The vision of Stanwich Church is to know Christ and make him known. The gospel lesson for today is from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. This can be found on page 993 of your Pew Bible. On the morning of his resurrection, Jesus instructed the disciples to meet him in Galilee. When they arrived, the eleven received this charge from the Lord, to tell the story of the gospel and create disciples in every nation. A reading from Matthew chapter 28, beginning with the 16th verse. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The New Testament lesson for today is from Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. This can be found on page 1084 of your Pew Bible. The power of the Spirit expands the community of believers and knits their hearts together in their shared devotion to the resurrected Christ. A reading from Acts chapter 4, beginning with the 32nd verse. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. I couldn't understand a single word. The music was different than any I've experienced in life. The liturgy was completely foreign. And yet, for the first time in months, in a strange sort of way, I felt like I was home. And no, no, I'm not talking about a U2 concert. The U2 and Bono references are all reserved for pastors 40 and up. <laughs> Heather, Nathan, I uh, just had to clear my throat there a little bit. No, no, it wasn't U2. It was actually something much better. That's possible, by the way, Heather. It was a church service in the Middle East. You see, it was 2019, and I was deployed forward, serving as an army chaplain, and it had been months since I'd attended a civilian church. And I was feeling somewhat disconnected 
somewhat isolated, somewhat untethered. But that all changed one Sunday when I had the opportunity to attend a local church gathering. One Sunday, I found out that there was a church welcoming individuals staying in the area. So I gathered together some soldiers and we headed to the National Evangelical Church of Kuwait. And when we arrived, we stuck out like sore thumbs. Not only that, but we had absolutely no clue what was happening. Partly because of the language barrier, but also because the worship format and style was like something most of us had never seen. And yet, as I sat in this foreign service on the other side of the world, surrounded by people that didn't look like me or speak with me, speak like me, I had a revelation that I was home because I was with family. You see, what I've come to realize now is in that moment, I was experiencing a gift. And that gift was the communion of the saints. We're in the midst of our sermon series on the Apostles' Creed, this ancient creed of the church that we say every Sunday, along with Christians all over the globe. And this week, we're looking at two of its statements, the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. I love how this shook out, by the way. Pastor Nathan, he got to speak on God Almighty and Jesus. And Pastor Gina got to speak on the Holy Spirit. And now I get to talk about the group of sinful people that come together to make up the church. Not only that, but I got the one section of the Apostles' Creed with an asterisk. Have you ever noticed that tricky little asterisk next to the word Catholic? I know some of you are probably wondering, why is that there? Well, don't worry, we'll get to that in a few minutes. But before we do so, we're going to look at this statement, the communion of the saints. And we're going to do so by diving into Acts chapter 4 and taking a look at one of the first church gatherings ever in history. And as we look at this first church gathering, what we're going to find is two things that have defined the communion of the saints ever since. And those two things are that the communion of the saints is united in seeking Jesus first. But not are we only united, our unity actually leads to something tangible. It leads to sacrificial generosity. So let's dive into Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. You can follow along in your pew Bible if you'd like. It's on page 1082. So it says this in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now notice what it says here. It says those who believed were of one heart and soul. The author of Acts, Luke, he's doing something very intentional here in the Greek. He uses the word cardia for heart. That's where we get our English word cardiac. And this reference is to these individuals' physical beings, their physical bodies. You see, the communion of saints were united physically. And what does that mean? It means simply we come together in the same location. And this is one of my favorite things to experience every Sunday here at Stanwich. In fact, one of my favorite moments in the service, it's kind of an odd moment during the benediction song, when we place a hand on one another's shoulder. And I think it's such a special moment because we're intentionally, physically blessing one another. 
You see, God knew that our souls were designed for physical connection. And Jesus knew this when he instituted the communion of the saints. And our souls, they crave for this physical interaction. And so to those of you watching online, if you've been watching for some time and you're craving this interaction, if you're physically able to come, I just want to say, come on back. The water's fine. Don't worry, we don't bite. But Luke, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say that the communion of the saints is a physical gathering. I mean, there are thousands of physical gatherings all around the world and all around our community every week that aren't actually the communion of the saints. So what sets this gathering apart? What makes this gathering different? Well, it comes in this next word we see in the Greek, soul or suke. This is where we get our word for psychology today. Suke in its simplest form means a shared mindset or goal. You see, the communion of the saints, not only is it a physical gathering, but it's a physical gathering with a shared goal. So what's the goal? I mean, what goal could I have possibly had in common with those people in Kuwait that didn't speak like me or look like me? What is the goal that unites us? I mean, is it a specific idea or ethic or set of ideas? No, what we see here in the text is it's actually something much bigger than any idea or ethic. You see, the goal is a person, and the person is named Jesus. Let's look at that in verse 33. It says this, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. You see, Jesus is the goal. He's the one that unites his church. And not only him, but also the fact that we believe he was resurrected from the dead and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. He is the one that makes us one soul, not our ethnic background, not our political persuasion, not our language or our nationality, not even our worship style. You see, Jesus, he's the goal that unites us with the broader communion of the saints. That is our Roman Catholic and Orthodox brothers and sisters. This is why we all fall under that same umbrella of the church. And I think this is really important for us today, especially for us living in the church in the United States. Because I think the majority of the division we see in the church, especially in our nation today, it actually has little to do with Jesus. In fact, I think the majority of division we seek is not because we have division and not seeking him, but because we seek something else that's not him at all. Because we seek conformity and we desire that we all look the same way and talk the same way and think the same way. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that there are fights worth fighting in the church. And the centrality of Jesus is one of them. If a church stops seeking Jesus, it ceases to be a church. It's something else entirely. But there are many other arguments that I see that are a complete waste of time. And I think the conformity argument is one of them. What I find interesting is that in the 20th century, there was another argument 
being made for conformity. And this conformity argument was against another institution that God had ordained, the family unit. Many philosophers and academics in the early 20th century were saying that the family unit is bad because it's uncomfortable or uncongenial. And I love how the famous theologian G.K. Chesterton turned their argument on its head. He would go on to say that the family unit is a good institution because it is uncomfortable, because it is uncongenial. It's wholesome precisely because it contains so many divergences and varieties. He would go on to talk about that family dinner table for a holiday. Can you picture it? You gathered there at the Thanksgiving table. And he would say that this meal is so important because you know at this table, you have that one crazy uncle who's probably going to say something completely inappropriate. And you have that cousin that you disagree with on just about every possible thing. And these are the exact people we need to be in relationship with. These are the exact friendships we need to have. And the church, it's kind of like that crazy dinner table in a way. By the way, just look around the room for a moment. If you're having trouble identifying the crazy uncle, I have some bad news for you. (laughs) But we need these relationships that are challenging, that are hard, where people disagree with us. Because it's in these relationships where I believe what Proverbs says becomes true. That iron sharpens iron. You see, we're different. And that's what's so beautiful about the church. If we were all conformed and we all looked the same way and worshiped exactly the same way, we would cease to be the church. And we would proceed to be what's called a cult You see, we need people that challenge us. We need people who are hard for us. And it's my fear today that as the church seeks conformity over unity in Jesus, that these conversations are ceasing to take place. And that means the death of the iron sharpening iron process. Now, I know some of you, and I know what you're probably thinking, well, pastor, I need the bottom line. I mean, how can I know if somebody's seated at the table in the first place. Well, our old senior pastor, Pastor Chuck, he clarified this for me once. He said, if you ever want to know if someone's in the communion of the saints, you have to ask one simple question. And that's, is Jesus Christ Lord of your life? And then you have your answer. So, okay, what happens then when people from all different backgrounds and age groups come together and are united in seeking Jesus. What does God do? Well, he actually, he gives us a gift. He gives us the gift of sacrificial generosity. Let's look at that in verse 34. It says this, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, great nickname, by the way, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I love this moment in the text. I can almost picture 
Joseph walking into the room. I imagine a man with a huge grin on his face, so filled with joy, almost as if he was floating in to give away his property to care for others. What a beautiful, beautiful testimony. Just a few contextual notes about what's happening here. Some teachers, they like to use this scripture and I think manipulate it in a way to support ideas like socialism or communism. But friends, this is not communism. This is what I'd like to call communism. You see, communism is forced, but communism is voluntary. Communism says what's yours is mine. Communism says what's mine is yours. Communism is top down, but communism is ground up. And what seems to be clear here in the early church is that individuals were seeing needs arise. And as they saw needs arise, they were selling additional property, additional assets to actually meet those needs. It's a common misconception that this all went perfectly, by the way. In fact, we know it didn't go perfectly because later in the New Testament and Acts, the apostles, they have to elect some leaders to take advantage to actually distribute the things correctly. It's also another misconception to believe that people were selling everything. We know that's not true because it says in Acts that they went on meeting in one another's homes. Even right here with Joseph called Barnabas, he's selling additional property in the area, but he most likely had a home back in Cyprus where he came from. Now, this might not be everything, but don't discount it. This is still radical generosity it's still sacrificial giving. And this is an incredible thing. And as your pastor, I want to say, since I've come to Stanwich, I've seen many of you do this. You've seen needs arise and you've given generously to those needs. One need that we've all recognized as God has led us is a need for a God-centered, Bible-believing church in Stanford. And you've given generously to that. And as your pastor, I want to say, although we're not there yet, well done, church. Well done in being generous. So what led Joseph to being so generous? And what leads us to being so generous? Well, it's not what, but it's who. You see, this generosity, it's rooted in who we seek above all else. It's rooted in seeking Jesus. And when we're united in seeking Jesus, what we come to realize is at the heart of his mission is generosity. Paul, later in the New Testament, in the book of Titus, chapter 4, verse 3, would put it this way. He would say, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that's Jesus, when he appeared, what did he do? He gave himself for us. Friends, no one has given more generously in history than Jesus himself. And how much did he give? Well, he gave this much. He gave this much when he went to the cross for you and for me, when he paid the penalty for our sin so that we don't have to. And when we seek him first and when we realize this, it's like we can't help but be generous with others. You see, no one told the early church to be generous. They were just generous as an overflow. So back to Kuwait. There are very few Kuwaiti Christians. 
Kuwait is an Islamic country. So the church I attended, it was actually established for a specific group of people that had moved to Kuwait, that is migrants that come to serve the Kuwaitis. These individuals, they work menial tasks for the most part for very little money. Most of them are from Sri Lanka and India and Southeast Asia. So the service concluded, and I'll never forget this, one of the pastors, she walked up to me and my group of soldiers, and she was in her full traditional garb. And she motioned for us to follow her. So we followed her to the back of the sanctuary. And in the back of the sanctuary, there was another room that we walked into. And there before us was a huge spread of food prepared by the congregation. You see, she was inviting us to their meal. And honestly, as I sat down to eat with these people, I was scandalized in a way because they were making dollars a day and yet they were sharing what they had with us. You see, this is the communion of the saints. This is radical generosity. This is what Jesus calls us to. Now, okay, is anybody worried about the asterisk still? I know I have some in the room. Well, don't worry, we're about to address address the asterisk. Well, and in order to address it properly, we have to go back to how the church started. And that's what we see in our first scripture we had read today in Matthew 28. And what we're going to see finally is that the communion of the saints, it's defined by seeking Jesus first in unity that leads to radical generosity. But that the communion of the saints is ultimately rooted in Jesus' authority. So let's dive into Matthew 28, verse 18 to look at that. You can find it on page 993 of your pew Bible if you want to follow along. It says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This section of scripture is often referred to as the Great Commission. And we tend to focus on its evangelistic aspect. And it is evangelistic. In other words, this scripture is all about us being told by Jesus to go tell others about him. But I want us to look at the commission itself. Notice who gives the commission. It's Jesus. And it's rooted in his authority. This is the commission that started the church. And this is what makes the church different than any other organization. Because Jesus started it. Jesus is the one that instituted it. And where does he institute the church to go? Well, he tells us to go to all nations. The Greek is interesting here in Matthew. That phrase, all nations, is ta ethne, or all ethnicities. You see, Jesus had a dream for his church, that there would be small communities gathered together in every ethnic group centered on worshiping him above all else. And this phrase, ta ethne, it's directly connected to the word we say every Sunday morning, Catholic. You see, Catholic with a lowercase c, it doesn't refer to any specific group of Christians or denomination. 
Rather, it refers to an outworking of the apostles taking Jesus' command seriously. The term Catholic comes from two Greek words that when you put them together, they mean throughout the whole. So when we say the word Catholic every Sunday morning, we're referring to Christians throughout all times and all places and all peoples. And I love the depth and beauty of this statement. But what I love even more is when I get to experience it. Just two weeks ago, I had one of these experiences. As some of you know, I still serve as an Army Reserve chaplain. And I was providing religious support a couple weeks ago for about a thousand soldiers that were doing a practical exercise down in Fort Dix, New Jersey. And so they gave us an entire hour on Sunday morning for a chapel service. And so I'm there with my chaplain friends and one of my friends who's another chaplain, he's a Roman Catholic priest. So we planned to do a 30-minute mass followed by a 30-minute Protestant service. So we're setting up for mass that morning and I noticed something. There's no soldiers in the room. Now I know as the chaplain, the majority of my soldiers, they belong to a denomination and that's Roman Catholic. And so what did I do? I left and I gathered all the Roman Catholic soldiers I knew with me and I had them follow me back to Catholic Mass. It was funny. The room was empty, and I walked in with two dozen soldiers behind me. And my brother, the priest, he was so blessed. He had a huge grin on his face when we all walked in. So Mass, it concluded, and I had the same problem. Maybe it's a marketing problem. I didn't have any Protestant services there. So what did our Protestant soldiers there? So what did he do? He went out, and he gathered all the Protestant soldiers. And he brought them back to my service and he attended. It was funny. He attended my whole service and he participated in the communion meal with me. He took communion from me. And I pulled him aside after the service. I said, Father, I just want to congratulate you on something. He goes, what? I go, that you're a real Christian now. (laughs) I love to give him a hard time, by the way. But friends, he and I are on the same team because we belong to the same church, the Holy Catholic Church the one that Jesus instituted in Matthew 28. That's why we love one another. So join me back to Kuwait. The service, it was concluding, and we were singing one single word over and over again. I think it was the only word I could parse in the entire service. And it was Yeshu, 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 or Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You see, we were gathered together worshiping Jesus. And that's why I knew that I was home. So Christian, join me in saying this next section of the creed. We'll begin with the Holy Spirit. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of saints. Amen. To learn more about the mission and vision of Stanwich Church and how you can get involved, please visit stanwichchurch.org.